Welcome to another episode of the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas. Uh, today we're going to talk about in-group bias, which seems like an appropriate enough topic for um, the holidays, Thanksgiving, people going home, and maybe you're in a different in-group than your parents and other relatives, and that causes friction. But um, this is where a lot of that comes from. So this uh, bias was identified uh, almost 100 years ago, maybe plus. Uh, 1906, there's a sociologist, William Sumner, who wrote about it. And he has a quote that I think sums it up really well. He said, Each group nourishes its own pride and vanity, boasts itself superior, exists in its own divinities, and looks with contempt on outsiders. And if that doesn't describe the current political landscape, I don't know what does. But um, this is kind of where you get phenomenon like othering coming from. Um, and it affects things like police investigations and judicial decisions, right? And again, at the end of the day, it's really just you think that your group is the shit. And all other groups are inferior. Um, and if you want a kind of a, kind of a good episode uh, of television that kind of talks about othering uh, in an interesting way, uh, there's an episode of Black Mirror called uh, Men Against Fire, which does an amazing and, as always, disturbing job of talking about othering um, through technology. And uh, so I highly recommend you check, check that out if you kind of want to learn more. Um, the interesting thing about in-and-out groups, though, um, is that they don't really necessarily have to come from some really deep-rooted thing like your religion or how you grew up, right? You can create in-and-out groups simply by flipping a coin. So there's a series of experiments where you sort of group people by just a coin flip, and then the people who are in one group very quickly <laughs> form an identity around that and think that they rate the people in that group higher than the people who were in the other group. And again, this all came from a coin flip that happened not long <laughs> before that, right? So it doesn't have to come from this place of like deep-seated, you know, anxiety. It, it, it can come from uh, just simply, oh, I was put in this group, now I'm in this group, and I immediately just have this mechanism, right, that makes me identify the people who are also in my group as better than everybody else. Um... And please excuse my dog. What's interesting about these groups is that um, you don't have to have, like I said, this like really deep-rooted thing there. You can start with just one trait, right? Something obvious, like we all have curly hair or we all like Doctor Who, right? And very quickly, we also associate other good th things with the people in that group, right? So, oh, well, you know, people with curly hair, you know, they also tend to be nicer, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. We're all nicer than people who don't have curly hair. And, and we're all, you know, stronger. Yeah. And smarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, right? We very quickly, and we talked about this before with the halo effect, right? You take one trait, and all of a sudden you line up all these other positive traits along with it, even though they're not necessarily correlated. So the uh, robber's cave experiment uh, was kind of a uh, look at this and how quickly you can form these groups. So they took a bunch of kids, maybe 10, 11 years old, um, out into this uh, like state park kind of situation, and they split them up into groups now. They didn't know that there were two groups. They thought they were just this one group of kids camping, and they started to form an identity around that, and they gave themselves you know, names, like the name of the group. I think one group was the Eagles, and the other group was the Rattlers. But over time the experimenters started letting each team kind of see evidence that the other team existed until finally they actually confronted them and saw that, hey, there's this other group of kids camping out there. And surprisingly quickly, <laughs> they started to hate each other, <laughs> right? And pull pranks on each other. And they eventually had to end the experiment because they were physically assaulting each other. Um, and they did try at the end to kind of like see if they could get the groups to cohere a little. And they gave them, I think like, they made it seem as if one of the uh, Jeeps or, or trucks was kind of stuck in the mud and that they all had to work together if they wanted to get out of there. And that 
sort of worked, but it seemed like it didn't last long. <laughs> like they still kind of, you know, had this you know, in-group, um, out-group bias going on. But again, it wasn't like these were like lifelong animosities. Like, no, they camped in the woods for a few weeks and then started hating each other. Um, the, it's interesting, though, the part where they try to get them to cohere. This does actually kind of happen in other uh, phenomena. So they've observed where um, they did a study around the 2008 presidential election where earlier on there was kind of in-group bias around, like, who you wanted to win the Democratic primary. So within Democrats, there was kind of in-group bias going on, although curiously it was more around the men than the women, um, even though it was Hillary versus Obama for a while there. Um but uh, that bias disappeared by the time you got to September. They kind of ran these experiments at different points during the uh, campaign. By the time you got to September, that in-group bias had disappeared, and everyone was just sort of pro-Obama, pro-Democrats, right? There wasn't the same fractioning. So those things can kind of morph as, like, you know, a common enemy or a common, like, purpose um, evolves. Uh, but generally speaking, we'll kind of, like, you know, go to our corners. Um, Another kind of interesting variation on this is, uh, like, there's this thing called the other race effect where you see people of other races, you have more difficulty distinguishing them from each other. Like, you've heard the phrase, well, all black people look alike to me. Like, that's an actual studied phenomenon. Like, if people are not in your in-group racially, you will actually have more difficulty identifying them. This does get mitigated, though, if you can kind of introduce the idea that they are affiliated with you in some way. So it makes me think of, like, you know, black Republicans or women who are Republicans, or, you know, that there are these, um, you know, group affiliations that, like, make people more tolerant. Although even then, you don't necessarily see the policies necessarily favoring other races or favoring women. Um, so maybe they're just better at identifying those individuals. But it's an interesting phenomenon, uh, nonetheless. Um... Another sort of interesting thing I didn't know about the in-group um, bias when I started looking into this is uh, there's this thing called the Dunbar number, and it's this basic idea that once you reach a certain number of people in a group, it becomes impossible for that to really think of itself as a group, right? Uh, sort of identify people and maintain friendships, maintain relationships. And that number is about 150. Once you get past 150, let's say you have more than 150 friends on Facebook, once you get to 151, they're not all your friends anymore, right? You can't actually maintain more than 150 of these relationships. So that's kind of like a, a social media thing and that gets like talked about. But um, this one aspect of it I didn't realize is another thing that happens once you get over 150 is it becomes harder to see those other people as actual people, right? It becomes easier to become racist or sexist or whatever once you go over 150. Like numbers 151 on up, you start to see as less human, right? Like, that's kind of dangerous. Um, so all the more reason to stay in that Dunbar number if you can. Um, and there's a couple different theories as to why we exhibit the in-group bias. So one is it's about scarcity, right? So those two groups in the robber's cave experiments, like, they were fighting over scarce resources. There's only so much water. There's only so much stuff. Um, so there's kind of a motivation from an evolutionary psychology perspective to stay in your lane, stick with your group, um, and hate the other group because the other group is uh, going to get your stuff. Um, so there's that aspect, but then there's another version um, where people think it may come from uh, something called social identity or so yeah social identity theory, uh, which and it's about self-esteem, right? So if I can be part of a group and that group is good, well I'm good because I'm in that group, right? My identity is tied to the group identity, so they both better be good, otherwise I'm going to have self-esteem problems, um, and 
it's interesting, like one version of this is uh, they did an experiment where they looked on college campuses uh, when the, I think it was the football team won a game, how many people wore the t-shirts of that team or of the college the next day versus if they lost. And it was always higher if they won. And I can kind of relate to this, right? Like, you know, I don't talk so much about like liking Joss Whedon's stuff anymore now that Joss Whedon has been kind of disgraced as, you know, a feminist because of how he treated his wife. Like, it makes it more difficult for me to talk about that stuff because I don't want to be associated with that, even though the work he created I still like. There's a whole episode about this in the Zero Risk Bias episode if you want to learn more. But so I can kind of get that, you know my in-group says something about me, so I really want to like my in-group and I want to distance myself if, like, suddenly it's not so cool a group anymore. Um, and you can see, you know, even within the group, like, self-identity comes in because it's not necessarily just about being in the group, but your role in the group. What role do you play in the group? Like, that can help you identify who you are as well. And there's a kind of an interesting um, example of this in a movie called Blind Spotting, which I highly recommend you watch. Uh, one of the characters is actually studying cognitive biases, <laughs> so I relate. Um, but uh, And the title itself comes from uh, kind of thinking about a, a cognitive bias. But um, one of the like in-group, out-group factions in that movie is, it takes place in Oakland, and like our main characters are sort of Oakland natives, and they're kind of constantly fighting against transplants who are coming in and gentrifying Oakland, right? And so you have a character who very much identifies themselves by that, by being native to Oakland, and when they are mistaken for being one of the transplants, it kind of, you know, sets off, you know, one of the key moments in the movie. But again, it comes back to that notion of it's the in-group I'm in, and then my role inside that group is very, very important to me. Um, but what's interesting about the self-esteem version of this, and I'll link to the, the, the meta-study in the show notes, but they kind of looked at this, and what they found was that, in some cases, having high self-esteem actually increased your in-group bias, right? So it isn't so much, oh, I need to believe in my in-group because I have low self-esteem. Well, actually, if, even if you have self if you have high self-esteem, you're actually more likely to buy into the whole in-group bias thing. So it's, it's interesting. Um, another thing I didn't really n know about this bias, before I kind of uh, dug in a little, is that oxytocin plays a role. So oxytocin is kind of like the love drug, like it's a hormone your body produces that is kind of related to empathy. It's kind of related to like your familial relationships, your friendships, like being connected to people, right, helps, you know, that you, you find this hormone to be present, you know, when um, thinking about human connection, which sounds like nice. And most of the things people write about oxytocin is really nice, but there's actually a really dark side when it comes to in-group bias. So it can affect, right, it can actually enhance in-group bias. So there's a version, an experiment where you um, basically administer oxytocin to people. And when you do, um, and, and what you do is you show them uh, faces of people in distress, right? And some of them are from their in-group and some of them are not. If you give them oxytocin, they feel more strongly, like more empathy toward the faces of the people in their in-group in distress and less toward the people who are in their out-group, right? So it enhances that connection, but at the same time, it kind of enhances their disconnection <laughs> from the out-group. So you can see how that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, and it also um, will cause you to lie more. So if you're in a situation where lying will benefit your in-group, you're more likely to do it if you've had oxytocin administered. Um, and then finally, there's another one where um, 
people will react more strongly to a flag that represents their country if they've been administered oxytocin and kind of be more neutral or negative towards other artifacts. Um, so you can see how oxytocin can actually like help with nationalism, right? Um, which is kind of on the rise right now. Um, so not always a good thing. Um, the other aspect of this I found really kind of fascinating is how it controls for gender. So they've done experiments where they sort of show people, um, ask people to associate different words with different genders, you know, um, summer, happiness, joy, or um, mean, derogatory, whatever, like the, 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 the positive words would tend to get associated with women. The negative words would tend to get associated with men. Now, here's the thing. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. In fact, women displayed a f like 4.5 times as much in-group bias. In other words, that they would sort of rate women much, much, much more highly than men would men. Um, and both men and women rated women higher. They associated those positive words with women more frequently. Um, and again, I can kind of relate, right? In general, just looking at human history, seeing more positive behavior from women, sort of I can get where, where you'd make that, that, um, that, that, that correlation. But it's interesting to see, like, even on a gendered basis, how that still breaks down. And the other piece, <laughs> um, which does not turn out well for men, is men tend to be more racist. So if you're doing those sort of, like, in-group, out-group, men will exhibit more, you know, racist in-group affiliations than women will. Um... What was really kind of interesting, so the experiment that particular one comes from actually is around Eastern versus Ashkenazi Jews in Israel, which are two sort of different, you know, racial groups of Jews, ethnic groups of Jews in, in Israel. And while um, generally speaking, people would, would exhibit uh, more, um, would exhibit in-group bias in general, men would do it more, but men would so have, men who are Eastern, let's say, would have more of a bias for Eastern men than for women. Like, if you were to break it down, not just Eastern versus Ashkenazi, but Eastern men versus Eastern women, men would exhibit more bias. For, Eastern men would exhibit more bias for Eastern men. Makes sense, right? I'm a man, I'm Eastern, I see an Eastern man, I'm going to, or a name, they used it based on names, a name that seems like an Eastern man, I will exhibit more bias for them. What was interesting was, when it came to Ashkenazi men versus women, the Eastern man would actually show more bias toward the, East, uh, the Ashkenazi women. In other words, here's this other group that I already don't like, but I don't like the men in that group more, right? I think the men in that group are worse, even though I'm a man. So that's kind of gender bias even plays out when you're looking at the out group. And apparently this also factored into a study that was looking at how um, African-American women did sort of in the business world and how even though they were not doing well, African-American men were doing worse, right? So there's, if you're like a, you know, white male, you are in fact more biased toward the black male, even though he's a male, um, than toward the women. And I'll link to that study. You can kind of read more. It's, it's really kind of, um, I think a really fascinating topic, but, um, but yeah, that's another little quirk of in-group bias, um, where gender really does play a very distinct role. Um, and the other place this shows up is in youth, right? They kind of looked at when do these biases develop. And if you look at boys versus girls, they looked at boys ages three to eight and they were straight up exhibiting in-group bias. The girls were not, they just weren't. Um, and again, there's all sorts of theories as to why that is, but there it is. Um, one last thing I want to get into, and we'll get into it a lot more later because we're going to look at this bias all on its own because it's huge. But um, there's a bias called system justification theory. Um, and, uh, and it, what it tries to look at is why do people who are oppressed think 
come up with with reasons why they should be right so um and where this ties into in-group biases there's a thing called in-group derogation which basically uh, is people talking shit about their own in-group um and they find that it happens more with groups that are less privileged right so upper echelons if your group is like on top you're doing well you tend not to tear each other down very much. If, on the other hand, you're kind of in the dumps and everyone shits on you, you tend to shit on yourself more frequently <laughs> than other in-groups that are doing better. Um, and again, the theory behind that is, well, if uh, black people are having a hard time in this country, just because we like for things to make sense, we will actually come up with excuses why that is and we'll start to tear each other down. Right. And, you know, there's an old lingo for this in the black community. It's called crabs, right? <laughs> Someone tries to, you know, get up, the crabs pull them back down again, right? Like, we don't like successful black people in the black community sometimes, which is kind of fucked up, but there it is. But it's this system justification theory. But even within your in-group, right, um, doesn't necessarily, that in-group bias doesn't necessarily shield you from tearing down your own in-group when you're in a kind of less privileged position, which I thought was another interesting aspect of this bias. Anyway, a whole lot to unpack there. It's just a really big, big bias that you can you can dig into if you want to learn more. And this this episode in particular, I think, is going to have a ton of show notes because there are so many studies about different aspects of it. Um, so I'll let you dig into that. Uh, but for this week, that is all. Have a hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and enjoy your Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, for the cognitive bias, I am your host, David Dylan Thomas, and we will see you next time. 